$7.4 billion. That's how much New York State personal income tax was paid in 2018 by residents of other states, including $5 billion by residents of New Jersey and Connecticut, most of them daily commuters to high-paying jobs in New York City. Our shift to remote work has serious potential implications for this revenue stream if a new court case brought by New Hampshire against Massachusetts prevails. Our guest, the Empire Center's E.J. McMahon, explains why this case is so important and joins us to analyze the New York State executive budget for fiscal year 2022. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks so much for joining us here. We are well into budget season and we are talking state and city budgets here on this episode, mostly focusing on the state budget because that's the most pressing issue at hand with a tighter timeline here before the start of the new state fiscal year on April 1st. And as we know, a lot of what happens with the New York City budget also depends on what happens at the state level first. And we are Just a few days as we're talking here from Mayor Bill de Blasio's annual budget testimony in front of state lawmakers, obviously will be different this year given the pandemic and the Zoom era, but it'll still be the mayor's annual testimony about the city's needs and wants from the state budget. So that's coming up soon, but we're going to dig in here in the first part of today's episode on the state budget, but stay tuned for later in the episode for a little bit more discussion on the city budget. So we are joined now by E.J. McMahon, the senior fellow and founder of the Empire Center for Public Policy. He's also an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute. E.J., thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's talk a little bit broad strokes about um, what you heard from the governor in releasing his executive budget uh, and what are some of the sort of biggest things you're thinking about before we dig into a bunch of specifics that Maria and I want to get to, um, you know, broad strokes when you heard the governor outline his executive budget plan, there's a lot of things up in the air. What stood out to you? What are you thinking the most about? How are you explaining to people, um, you know, what, what was really said there and, and cutting through some of the noise? Well, cutting through some of the noise is an apt description for the, what the, the, a primary task is in looking at the state budget this year, because what I thought as I was hearing it, well, when he began his budget presentation, I spent most of it wondering when the budget presentation was going to begin. Uh, basically, there's this year more than almost any year, uh, more actually more than any year in memory, along, which is long, uh, there's the budget narrative from the governor and there's the actual budget. The governor's budget narrative was reflected in, there was a headline, I think, in the New York Times, and I'm not picking on the Times. This narrative was kind of picked up in most of the news coverage because reporters, to a certain extent, to a great extent, have to report what is what does the top guy say? So the Times headline was something I'm closely paraphrasing, like Cuomo proposes doomsday budget demands $15 billion from feds or he'll sue. Um, the fact of the matter is he didn't propose a doomsday budget. He doesn't need $15 billion. And um, um, he, is, he, has, he is hoping for an amount of federal aid that he's likely to get. And basically in the meantime, he's still plugging holes um, created by the pandemic. He's plugging them more or less successfully so far with federal money and having minimal effect on services or state aid. Um, And while he's hoping for a really big injection of additional federal funding under the stimulus bill that's now being worked on in Washington, the one striking feature of the governor's approach to budgeting starting back last, before pre-last spring, late last winter, as the pandemic was beginning to unfold, is the governor is not doing really doing anything to to chart and make possible a flight path to some for the sustainable level of spending and uh, revenue raising on the state level or indirectly the city level or local level. Uh, basically, he has focused relentlessly on demanding that Washington give him lots of money, which it has. So the state funded budget, the part the state pays for, as he's proposed, it is actually up about a one and a half, one point two percent, I think. Mm-hmm. Now that includes about $2 billion in revenue actions, an actual tax increase actually of a billion and a half dollars focused on high earners. That was, again, that was a case of narrative. His narrative around that was, 
I need to do this tax increase, which I've resisted, resisted in the past, unless I get $15 billion. That actually is not true. What he's done is he has proposed a billion and a half dollar tax increase in a revenue bill accompanying the budget. And it's, it's basically that is a starting point. That absolutely will happen as part of the budget because the legislature, the legislature is in a feeding frenzy. It desires to increase taxes on high earners, whether or not they even need the money. He's put it on the table as sort of a peace offering and it's temporary supposedly ending after three years with a rather unusual provision that would essentially give affected taxpayers a refund of what they had paid extra. This, this tax increase, by the way, would take the state's top rate from 8.82 to uh, I think 10.8 or so, and um, which would mean in the city that it would be almost 15% combined. Mm -hmm. Uh, it would, the top rate would only affect taxpayers who make over $100 million, uh, of whom the number is unknown to anybody except deep in the state government. It would begin at a lower level on people making over $5 million. Speaking of uh, income taxes, I know Maria wants to ask you something about that, but, but before we get to that... Um, you know, one thing you got it that's interesting, and I, we don't need to go in through all the ins and outs of this, but I've been, you know, the legislature has been talking about revenue raising and, and income, right. you know, they've been talking and talking and talking. They don't, they don't seem so eager to actually take action. So it'll be very interesting when it all comes down here, what actually gets done. I mean, the governor seems to have actually put out there uh, something more concrete. Maybe he's trying to get ahead of the legislature a little bit um, as he often does, but you know, the legislature has been talking and talking and talking about the revenue raisers and they, they haven't really uh, signaled that much willingness to really do it. So, yeah, well, they're, they're not only willing, but anxious. And I would point out to you, just so you know, just sort of remind you, because mm -hmm. you know this, every year for, for the past four or five years leading up to last year, when things were confused by the start of the pandemic, the Assembly Democrats' one house budget bill always included a, a much larger increase sure. in the millionaire tax even when the money wasn't needed. This, this is a political article of faith. It's not mm -hmm. a fiscal necessity. Well, again, we, we, I, I, this has just been something interesting to me as I've watched them put out statements and everybody goes on different shows and says we need to raise revenue, but they, don't, right. you know, they, they, seem, they seem a little uh, gun-shy on that, so we'll see. Um, just quickly, a couple broad strokes. This is from the governor's um, press release about his budget, but when he assumes $15 billion in federal aid, it puts the state operating fund spending in his plan at 103.4 billion right and all fund spending at 192.9 billion right uh, for next fiscal year again that's the outline of the governor's budget plan nothing's final till till the budget is is adopted um, usually right around the april 1st start of the fiscal year so just a couple top line numbers for folks but as you get at it, ej and we'll get back to this in a minute i want to i want to um let Maria jump in with this important question about income taxes. But, um, you know, as you got at, the, the, the picture keeps changing. I mean, the Empire Center just, re, you know, reported uh, yesterday, I think, from Bill right. Hammond on more, more federal money keeps coming in in different shapes right. and sizes. So this picture is changing a lot. And there's been questions for a while now about whether the governor is really presenting the accurate picture as you got at. Um, but go ahead, Maria. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's important to sort of unpack a little bit of what you said at the top, EJ, which is he says he's got a $15 billion gap and that that's what he needs Washington to fill. And I think we have also said it's really not 15 billion. And, you know, one frustration has been since the pandemic began, you know, getting the right numbers in the press and in the public standing, uh, understanding of like what the size of the problem is. Because initially that, you know, there was a 15 or 16 billion dollar revenue shortfall right but then there were actions taken to to account for that and bridge it and also also this influx of federal aid as you say so you know what can you give people a sense of so what is it actually like what is the size of the gap um if it's not 15 billion like the governor says what is you know why not um and what is the size of the problem on the base of a budget like ben just mentioned well to start with the 15 billion dollars was um, the difference between the revenue the governor was projecting a year ago when he put out his executive budget for the current year before the pandemic, which was a pretty, fairly based on a fairly obvious revenue projection. 
So that the initial difference between what he had projected and what was projected to be revenues in, uh, in the spring after this budget was adopted was around $15 billion. Uh, the difference over four years, although we only budget one year at a time, was something like 60, which was another number the governor favored for a while, although 60 is kind of, it doesn't really a real number, <clears throat> right? What's going on now is in around the first quarter, the governor is projecting that, that tax receipts would be something like $8 billion below last year's level, eight or nine. Uh, as the state controller pointed out, based on collections through the first half of the year in November, it looked like actually it was going to be considerably smaller than that. And the actual difference in revenues is more like four or $5 billion less than last year, which is still a very big problem and a big difference. So there's a structural, the structural gap always is what is spending under current law, what is spending doing on autopilot? If you don't do anything else to spending, where is it headed? That's one number. The other number is if you don't do anything else on revenue, where's that headed? Well, that structural gap is anywhere between six and billion and $10 billion, depending on what's going on in the deep black box known as Medicaid, which has become hopelessly confused as the second largest item in the budget. Um, and was trending upward at its traditional rate, all things considered, with the help of federal aid. The last time we took a look, my colleague Bill Hammond did about a month ago, or a few weeks ago, actually. So there's an additional structural gap that needs to be closed. You know, revenues are expected to recover back to pre-pandemic levels in two years or so. Uh, if you don't count the tax increase the governor's proposed, it would be in three years. Employment's not uh, projected to be back on track for four years. All of these things are projections that have a lot of ifs in them. So if you have two lines, one's spending and one's revenue, and the spending line is still on an upward trajectory. You remember, remember the, the, the tragic video we all remember of the Challenger accident? And remember how the, the Challenger blew up and part of it was still heading up and the rest of it was going down? So it's kind of to use a, maybe an inexact metaphor at best, basically spending is heading up, revenue went down, is now beginning to come up again, but the spending is way above it. So something has to bring those two lines on top of each other. What the, governor, the governor's quest for 15 billion, this sort of figure he keeps using, is basically, would basically be enough to close the difference between those two numbers and then some, depending over how many years he got it. But Everyone knows, including the governor, that it's only temporary. At some point, uh, he will be left with a difference between the state's own revenues and the state spending. And something's going to be needed to close that gap. <clears throat> and we don't actually hear any answers on that yet. And yeah, and, and certainly I think part of what was surprising in the proposal, I mean, I think the, you know, the governor's framing was a little bit confusing in terms of, you know, this is really my budget, but then I've got this doomsday budget, except that's actually the budget. Um, right. So, you know, once yeah. you impact that, you sort of realize, okay, this is this is the part that is real and what I'm, I'm dealing with. Um, but, you know, what's surprising is to see some of the growth rates in Medicaid and school aid. Now, yeah. part of what's happening there, you know, as you said, Medicaid continues to grow and there were sort of, once this big payment delay came to light, you know, there was some limited action there to kind of try to bring that back in and, and bring it under the cap and control the, the spending growth. But we see a huge growth in school aid. 7.1%. And part of that is just, you know, it, it's the governor actually making cuts in state aid, um, you know, but given federal maintenance of effort provisions using federal aid to then kind of um, uh, steady that and even provide this big increase to school districts. But then that heads to a fiscal cliff. Because right. what, when that federal money goes away, um, you know, the expectation will, will school districts will be left with fewer resources without kind of making, um, starting to get ahead of some of those changes now. Um, and so what's, what's a little worrisome, I think, in the broad view is that, as you say, this millionaire's tax is, is billed to be temporary, definitely part of how the gaps will be closed. But there, that's just when the problem is starting to accelerate when you've already kind of tapped this millionaire's tax um, for the benefit now. Um, you know, what, what, give us your, your sense on what, you know, what, whether the millionaire's tax as it's proposed and structured, uh, you know, what the pitfalls there would be. 
Well, <clears throat> the pitfalls are they're, they're in one part start with competitive and 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 risks of uh, of uh, unintended but likely consequences. Uh, there, the, the tax rate that he's now proposing on the state level, state only, it would be the highest tax rate in nearly 40 years in New York State. Now, here's the difference, though. It actually would be the highest. It's already actually the actual tax rate is already by far the highest ever net because of the cap on state and local tax deductions at the federal level, SALT, as we hear talk about. Um, the net effective marginal rate on the highest earners in New York is, is, is at its highest level ever. It was actually peaked on its state only level. State and city was almost 20% in the early 70s. However, it was fully deductible from a federal tax rate that was over 70% at the time. So you do the math and you're getting a 70% plus discount. So it didn't cost that much. Now you're getting no discount at all if you're in the top bracket effectively. So you got a full bore st top rate of 8.8 of uh, in the city, almost 13. And you're now talking about going to almost 15 in the city and almost 11 on the state level. That's an order of magnitude larger by far than any tax rate the state has ever imposed in its history compared to states that have low or no taxes. That's a, a significant risk there. You're, to be imposed on uh, people with income, uh, with very high incomes of whom there are only around 6,700 in the entire state. And when you have a small number of taxpayers you're counting on to deliver a large amount of money, even temporarily, you are, have a bigger risk of losing uh, uh, or of having losses offsetting the gains if even a small number of those people to behave in different ways, choose to leave, you name it. So Where are we just quickly, I, yeah. I, I mean, that all obviously makes sense, common sense to folks that, you know, the, especially in an era where people have been working from home or leaving the city for their second homes and, and a variety right. of factors, yeah. that all makes sense. But we two things. One, we don't really know, right? And we have limited evidence about what the impact would be. Correct me if I'm wrong or argue with me on that. Two, uh, do, do we do we have a sense yet in terms of the impact that SALT has had on people either leaving the state or, um, you know, the governor puts out these numbers about what the SALT cap has cost New Yorkers, but I know you've often uh, poked, poked yeah. holes in that estimate. So, so those two things are maybe somewhat competing, but, um, you know, we, we, we don't have a great sense of what the impact of of an income tax increase would be, though plenty of common sense tells us it would be a risk, right? To lose mm. some of those, that relatively small number of high earners that, we, that the state relies so much on. And then two, the SALT issue, do we know what impact that's had? And um, it seems like there's some federal movement towards reinstating uh, the old you know, uh, deduction. Well, taking the last point first, the idea of reinstating a full SALT deduction, keeping in mind that it really primarily benefits only a small number of states, starting with New York. It doesn't matter that Democrats control Congress. Most of those Democrats are from other states, um, number one. Number two, it's extremely costly. I, the figure of $82 billion a year or something. I mean, it's a very costly. The reason the Republicans did it when they did their tax cut, it was their so-called pay-for. Right. The, the way they paid for the tax cut was by taking away this deduction. The, nonetheless, the vast majority of New Yorkers, the vast majority, notwithstanding what the governor says, save money under the new tax bill, which by the way, caveat, full disclosure, I didn't like the new tax bill for a lot of the income tax part in particular for a lot of reasons. But the facts are the vast majority of New Yorkers in general and the vast majority of individual New Yorkers are paying lower taxes now than they did before under the new federal tax law, including suburbanites with very high property taxes because of other factors, other features of the tax code. The people who are negatively affected who are paying higher taxes now total uh, are actually the highest earners, the people at the top end, because they, you're talking about people whose state and local tax deductions ran into the high six figures and into the millions of dollars who now don't have that deduction. And their rate cut did not make up for that. So that's a that's a real problem. And when the governor expresses concerns about it, that's what he really has in mind. I don't, it doesn't take much mind reading to understand that. It also is, is when he now continues to push for repeal of the SALT deduction, what he's, it's actually a two-part push. I'd like you to, to restore the full SALT deduction, 
um, so that you can then raise federal tax rates higher, but our taxes will be deductible from it. And so we'll be in a better position competitively. That's what he means. The Biden administration, Joe Biden and his administration in general, is inclined to raise federal taxes quite a bit, but not right away. They definitely want to do a very significant tax increase, which would fall very heavily on the high earners who are the key of our tax base, who pay 40% of our income tax plus, et cetera, the top 1%. Um, the, the thing is, we've never historically had an experience where we raised our tax taxes significantly with no federal deduction, followed by an increase in federal taxes. The historical trends going over the last 40 years have been in the opposite direction. So that's one mm -hmm. thing. Number two, there was already evidence before, even before the federal tax change in the pandemic, which I've cited, um, of a drift away of an erosion at the high end of our tax base, an increasing share, increasingly large share of all the millionaire earners in our tax base are non-residents who are thus not taxed on anything except their earnings in New York. Um, there, if you look at just moves to Florida from certain zip codes or certain, certain counties in New York to certain counties in Florida, there's been a very, very significant increase between 2011 and 2018 in the, in the average incomes of migrants from New York to Florida. Uh, uh, in, in the case of New York City, it's well over, in the case of Manhattan, for instance, it's well over $200,000 average income it became. Um, now that average probably is inflated by people at, who make considerably more than that, who are pulling up the whole number. So we don't have a lot of detailed data on really high earners because of confidentiality reasons, but I think that what we see reflected in the tax data going back 10 to 15 years is that there was already a drift away, some of which was inevitable demographically because high earners and wealthy people tend to be baby boomers mm -hmm. who are getting older and in pre-retirement retirement phases, um, or people who are re repositioning their lives because we're one of only 13 or 14 states that have any estate tax, any estate tax. So we, people like to cite a prominent example, Carl Icahn, who's been a New Yorker all his life, moved his whole outfit, his, the core of his business to Florida before the pandemic. What happens in the debates over this is that rather than look at the fiscal facts of this and look at how we have reaped a lot of revenue off of a small number of high earners, is that if you, are, if you point out the risk of losing those high earners, the problem is that people who advocate higher taxes say that you must like Carl Icahn a lot. And the, it, this has to, nothing to do with individuals or what you think of the distribution of income or the entire heavily financially dependent uh, New York economy or Wall Street or anything else. If you're going to be a state that it depends exceptionally, that is exceptionally dependent on high earners, and you take exceptional steps far beyond the norm of other states to increase the burden of living and doing business in New York for those high earners of whom there are only a few thousand, you are risking undermining uh, your tax base at a very vulnerable time uh, in, this, in the city and state's history. That's the problem, We're very heavily dependent on them. This is not your, this is the paraphrase, this is not your father's tax increase. This tax increase and the range of tax increases proposed with it by advocates of higher taxes the governor proposed are unlike, are far beyond and unlike anything that has ever been proposed in the history of New York State, including as recently as a decade or so ago. So in all the noise this generates also is not lost uh, on the hearing of people who are on the bubble as it were and trying to determine what their next steps are as they as the pandemic fades away. As you said, a lot of really high income people, I think we can all think of some names even, tend to be, we know the ones who are most familiar to us are in say the Hamptons. So they're still in New York state, but they're not in, you know, in Fifth Avenue or something. Mm -hmm. um, there have been stories well publicized at times, just did another story on it this past week of major finance firms opening their outposts in Miami, including several, one of the largest hedge funds in the world, Elliott Management is, open, is changing its headquarters to Florida. Um, again, you don't have to love those firms or their business model or have it be something your ideology endorses to understand that when you lose a f even a few hundred people who make the kind of money those people make in a good year, your the tax base takes a hit. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, so there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, in just sort of summary and stepping back, right? I mean, we have a very high, particularly in the city, combined state and local tax burden, right? That's just like the starting point. And for the really high earners, as you say, SALT kind of aggravated that and made it even higher relative to some of these low cost jurisdictions. And, you know, you know, you talked a little bit about Florida and places where there are no income taxes. Um, but, you know, we're also talking about New Jersey, right? You know, New right. York versus New Jersey versus Connecticut versus leaving the city and deciding you're going to change your permanent residence to the Hamptons. Right. Um, and so, you know, then layering on another income tax increase makes that all the more aggravated at a time where we have this proof of concept that people can run their businesses remotely, which is fundamentally yeah. different than it was 10 years ago. And this sort of gets to another topic that I, I will just say, just to conclude that, um, you know, on the other hand, the personal income tax, given how reliant um, the state is on it for its finances, is one of the few taxes that can generate the kind of big dollars that can fill a sizable gap, right? Yeah. So I think some of this is really about how do you, and we already have a very progressive tax in the state and income tax yeah. in the state, how could you structure a, a, a tax increase to make it less detrimental if you needed to go there because you had exhausted other options. Right. But, um, you know, so you've touched, you touched a little bit about this and what you talked about and you've written about this and it's something that I've looked at with great interest, which is about this case um, that New Hampshire has brought against Massachusetts dealing with right. this very question of whose income and who's allowed to tax it and where does it count? So, you know, we've had this really fundamental shift in the economy, right? For New York City in particular, it has like a lot, you know, there are a lot of implications because our economic model is people live all over and then we bring them in with the mass transit system and, you know, they're in the city, we tax them and we love it and it's good for our budget. Um, and now that's all gone poof a little bit in this pandemic. So, you know, explain, it's, it's complicated. And I'll let you do right. the, the explaining because you will do it very clearly. But, you know, for a worker who, you know, comes to work uh, downtown, but lives in New Jersey, how is that worker's income taxed? If you work in, uh, if you commute in from New Jersey every day, as hundreds of thousands of people do, between probably 350 to 400,000 people do it daily or very regularly many to higher paying jobs and most of them to Manhattan. Uh, you, you file two tax returns every year. You file an income tax return with the state of New Jersey where you live and you've been having income tax withheld by the state of New York and you file an income tax return with New York. You file what's called a non-resident return. You figure out your taxes in both states uh, you figure out what you what you paid to New York and what you owe to New York, and then New Jersey gives you a credit for that against its own taxes. Um, so what happens basically is because of the tax on all but the very, very highest earners is higher in New York than in New Jersey and considerably higher in New York than in Connecticut, the credit you get basically uh, wipes out your taxes in your home state. So for New Jersey, I remember talking to, to analysts in New Jersey of somebody who formerly worked in the treasurer's office once put it this way, is that every morning we watch $2 billion cross the bridge uh, <laughs> because they, you know, J Jersey is a high, high tax state, fairly highly spending state, sort of a mini New York, but actually gives up a hunk of its tax re revenues every year effectively to New York through this taxation arrangement. Now, this goes back to the dawn of the New York income tax almost 100, 101 years ago. New Jersey didn't have its own income tax till the late 70s. Uh, that's not controversial. But in the early dawn, in the pre-dawn of people working from home for any reason, well before this current era, when people began to work remotely for in one way or another, even using the fax machine, say, um, New York uh, uh, created and has relied very heavily on something called what became to be known as the convenience of the employer doctrine, which doesn't mean quite what it says. What it basically means is that New York asserts the right to tax your income if you are working um, because the, the employer lets you at in another state, even though you physically don't come here at all or much. Now, that, that basically is all those people who commute from New Jersey who are now working remotely in New Jersey, but who eventually expect sooner or later to come back to say a law office or some professional firm in New York, they are all continuing to pay New York state taxes right now because of that rule. 
So are people from Connecticut. Uh, this has been a rule that's been challenged in state courts by a law professor named Ed Zielinski from Cardozo Law School, who's one of the ranking experts on this also, who lives in New Haven. Uh, he, he lost the case in the State Court of Appeals of New York uh, almost 20 years ago that asserted and upheld this doctrine. We can tax you wherever you are. It's been challenged again and again. There's a guy in one case that Zielinski uh, had, uh, it was a guy in Arizona who was just basically managing the books and the operations of a computer, small computer consultant in, in Manhattan. And he had to, he paid taxes even though he was working out of his home in Arizona. So the only way you can get around this is, and this is on the guidance on the own state side, um, says that if you're a non-resident whose, whose primary office is in New York State or your employer's primary office is in New York State, your days are considered days worked in the state no matter where you're working. The only way to get around that is if your employer establishes what, the, what they call a bona fide employer office. And a bona fide employer office is someplace where the company's actually doing sufficient business to have actually a nexus in that state, as tax experts call it, which many firms are reluctant to do because, say, New Jersey or Connecticut's tax corporate tax codes might not might not be preferable to to New York's for some many of these employers. So they're kind of <clears throat> in a gray zone, and the workers are just taxed. What happened in Massachusetts? Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, like Andrew Cuomo in New York, at a, early in the pandemic, mid, mid or late March, issued an order saying, okay, we're, we're have, this is a lockdown. People should not come to work. You should work from home if you can. There's a sizable commuter flow from Southern New Hampshire into Boston, just as from New Jersey to uh, New York. And so those people are now working from home in places like Nashua, New Hampshire, and New Hampshire has no income tax. And Massachusetts has asserted the ability to continue to withhold its taxes from those people on something basically its own version of the New York doctrine. New uh, I mean, Massachusetts, New Hampshire. New Hampshire has taken this to the Supreme Court, an un unusual legal step. It's asserting that this is a dispute between two states and they don't wanna go up through the levels of all the federal court system. They want the Supreme Court as a matter of direct original jurisdiction to hear its, its case against Massachusetts, which basically says that this is essentially unconstitutional, that, that Massachusetts can't assert the right to tax these New Hampshire residents. Um, if that was decided in New Hampshire's favor, if the court agrees to hear the case, which is now up in the air, uh, and it's decided in New Hampshire's favor, that would clearly implicate New York's continued ability to tax work at home, uh, uh, remote working arrangements. And I think most, there's a lot of guesswork around this, but most analysts of this problem, most people, most journalists certainly who have covered it, uh, most people in the business community expect there to be a, that a significant number, a minority probably, but a significant minority of the people who've been working at home during the pandemic will continue to work at home. So if even a small percentage, if even 10% of all the people working in Connecticut and Massachusetts who generate uh, pardon me, Connecticut and New Jersey, who generate $5 billion in taxes for New York State, $5 billion. So 10% of them and they, uh, uh, earn their, continue to earn their salaries working remotely, that's, there's a half billion dollars out of the state's revenue right there. Even a smaller chunk is a noticeable number when you get up to nine figures. So this, this case is a big deal and uh, it's kind of hanging in the balance right now. So it's awaiting a determination from the Solicitor General. What you know? What is the Biden well, the, the Supreme the yes, the Supreme, the Supreme Court the Supreme Court kind of punted it. They they could have New Hampshire filed this you know petition or request for the court to take the case. Something like fourteen states in two different groups filed amicus briefs in support of New Hampshire. All these states where people live who are telecommuting to high tech states. New York was, has been silent as an official matter, did not file a brief anything. The court could have said, we're not taking this, go file in a lower court or in state court. That would have been the end of it because state, it just wouldn't have gone anywhere. The court could have taken the case, which would have itself been kind of a precedent as a matter of original jurisdiction and put it on the calendar and schedule an argument. It shows a third way, it punted. This was a week after Biden, less than a week after President Biden took office the court put out one line in a long list of orders and said, we basically said, we'd like to hear what the acting solicitor general thinks, which essentially means, well, what does the Biden administration think? Do you think this is a case we should take? 
that's an interesting political question, of course, because um, there are Democrats on both sides of this issue in terms of as a pure political matter, there are, are, are more uh, prominent Democrats from uh, blue states on the other side of this issue from New York. Um, the most prominent Democratic politician in the country uh, uh, who doesn't want this case to go anywhere is our own governor, Andrew Cuomo. So it's going to be an it's, it'll be interesting to see how the Biden in, uh, administration responds. And then even if, say, the Biden administration says, well, we don't think this is a matter for the Supreme Court for original jurisdiction, the court can still reject that opinion and say, okay, we've heard your opinion. However, we will take the case because the court, of course, is dominated by sort of strict construction as conservative Republican appointees. Mm -hmm. So um, this has a little bit of time to, to play out. There's two more steps. Solicitor General, then the Solicitor General will say something under no particular deadline, by the way, and then the court will decide whether it's going to, again, whether to take the case. Uh, and meanwhile, there's this big if. In New Jersey, New Jersey officials over the summer began making noise about how they didn't like this arrangement, considering that so many of their constituents were working at home in New Jersey. Now, New Jersey, by the way, you, loses less from this than we gain because their taxes lower on, on middle and upper middle class filers. I think they lose a billion nine or something, which is, a, but for their budget, it's actually a bigger amount. Mm -hmm. um, but there's not much New Jersey can do about this other than denying you a credit and punishing your residents. They really can't do anything. Um, so it's, it's, it's a point of tension. It's going to remain a point of tension. And it, and it certainly exposes a, a key part of the state's revenue base to further erosion. So we're talking with E.J. McMahon, senior fellow and founder of the Empire Center for Public Policy. E.J. is also an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And E.J., thanks again for, for taking all this time with us this morning. Um, I think we just want to hit a couple other things on, on state budget, state financing. Um, before I get to my next question, Maria, do you want to jump, jump in again? Sure. So um, I, I guess I wanted to try to sum up a little bit for people um, where things stand in terms of Medicaid reform and whether um, you know the pandemic and the emergency around it and questions around uh, revenue have sort of put a pin in that for now. Are there key things coming up that people should really be um, watching for and looking closely as to how the governor and the legislature are handling it as we get to this next budget? Um, it has the federal government funding, as I mentioned earlier, you at the Empire Center, Bill Hammond, your healthcare expert, recently um, wrote about how there's more Medicaid money coming from the federal government than, than we thought. So is the federal government sort of just like getting the state off the hook for now on Medicaid? Um, what, what should we be watching for there in the next couple months here? Well, it, it is, the federal government is, is providing temporary relief. It's really like an analgesic, which happened also in the, after the Great Recession uh, 11 years ago. So the state is giving added Medicaid reimbursements to all states. And since we're the state with the biggest and most expensive program, it's a lot for us. What, where was Medicaid spending headed? Well, re, you recall that over the years, the recent years, Governor Cuomo had actually developed a rolling, growing cash flow deficit approaching $2 billion or more by delaying payment of Medicaid bills every spring, which had be, which becoming a fairly obvious problem that, he, that the administration finally began to acknowledge clearly a couple of years ago. Um, last year's budget at this time, the most controversial aspect of the budget was something called a Medicaid redesign team that was supposed to recommend changes in the Medicaid, uh, Medicaid benefit structure and Medicaid program to save $2 billion and to bring expenditures back into line with current revenues. That was overwhelmed, the, the, the progress of, of that process and the effectiveness of its proposals were kind of subsumed in the pandemic. There were, at the tail end, there were proposals enacted and included in the budget that were supposed to save the, uh, the, the amount of money or a an amount the governor found acceptable to save in the Medicaid program. That all got kind of mixed in. The state's financial reporting has become murky during this process and the cash flows. But if you cut through all of it, as my colleague Bill Hammond has shown, the rate of expenditure increase in Medicaid has, has stayed the same through the pandemic. The actual program 
even while enrollment and actual enrollment went up because of the pandemic, but actual many ex key expenditure categories went down because of common Everything. health. What happened and nothing was happening right. other than pandemic treatment. So there were some there were mixed factors, and right now it's really something of a black box. It's it's this Medicaid is the second largest state funded. I'll emphasize state funded category of the state budget. It's the largest overall program with multiple funded levels. Mm -hmm. School aid is the largest category of state-funded expenditures. The two of them together are half of the state-funded part of the budget. Right. And the answer is, it's we're just not sure. It's 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 like a lot of key um, problems were were swept under the rug and kind of uh, put off to the side. And and it's sort of a to be continued. Right. That's that's part of the reason I ask about it. Maria got it education funding briefly earlier, and these these two big buckets are just so important. And uh, and these you know these upcoming uh, legislative budget hearings and and you know negotiations and what comes you know continues to come from the federal government will be so key in figuring out some of this. But but these Medicaid you know this Medicaid discussion. This was the big state budget right. crisis before the bigger state budget yes. crisis, and so. You know, talking about this in New York City as well. You know, the, the, there were there were all these crises before the big crisis, right? right? So we can't yes. forget about all these, and now they all mix together with a very tricky brew. And in some cases, um, you know, it is very hard to tell. And we're all trying to dig to see what money is actually coming in, where, and going out where, and and that's going to be important over these next. And, and don't don't forget, don't forget that a larger, a sizable minority of the legislative majorities, of uh, the most. Uh, certainly the most insistent and, and ideologically committed cores in both houses, they want single payer healthcare on the state level. And um, they're gonna, in fact, one reason that same group is endorsing 50 billion, five zero billion in tax increases at the state level is in part to pay for that. And since it appears the Biden administration is not gonna push real hard on a, on a Bernie Sanders style Medicare for all program, they are gonna continue to push that. So. Yes, the Medicaid, all, the Medicaid funding controversy and the Medicaid spending levels will then rise back up as a controversy in state budgeting. At the same time, there'll be large contingents of members in the new super Democratic supermajorities in that and the legislature who will want to renew their call for single payer health care in New York. Um, which, so, which which will get which will get renewed, but but isn't won't happen under this governor. I think. Complete. Well, I complete, it's complete. I, I, I'll venture to say I'm going to make what I don't think is too crazy a prediction. Um, it will not happen ever under any governor because it's just not possible. That's to probably fund a safe prediction. But um, it, it, certainly, though, it gives you an idea of the degree of difficulty that will that this governor or any or his successor will face in trying to rein in Medicaid spending again once they've got they have to be the state is. Uh, doesn't have a, a fresh infusions of federal funding coming in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, these are really the whoppers for the state government, right? It's Medicaid and education. And, you know, I think we should give a little credit in the sense that, like, you know, coming out of the Great Recession, the governor has held his agencies to very yeah. strict growth, right? Yeah. So, and, and uh, you know, kind of level headcount. So it's been a very different story from say what we've seen in the city where there's been this tremendous growth and a huge yes. explosion of headcount coming into this crisis. So that part that's in his duress control has been very strictly managed. And these, uh, but these other two pieces, um, you know, while there were some restraint early on have now continued to grow. And it's really, you know, how the city, the state manages you know, coming out of this crisis is really going to depend on what happens in these two areas and how, you know, there can be reforms and efficiencies and, and potentially some restructuring of, of um, you know, what the funds are used for and how they're targeted. Um, EJ, thank you so much. You're welcome. Always a pleasure to speak to you. I'm sure people will find this really, really informative. Um, great to have you on. Thank you for being Thanks, here. Thanks, EJ. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. Good luck. Okay, so after that very interesting discussion with E.J. McMahon focused on state finances and the state budget, let's spend a few minutes here on the New York City budget. Obviously, Mayor Bill de Blasio has put out his preliminary budget for next fiscal year, which begins July 1st. As I said at the start of our discussion with E.J. about the state budget, a lot of New York City's budget will depend on what happens in Albany with the state budget, which is due by April 1st. Um, but there's a lot going on in the city around budgeting. As we discussed with EJ, Maria, 
A lot also depends on what the city will get from the federal government, what the city continues to get from the federal government, aside from the sort of direct big aid package to state and local governments that everybody's angling for. Um, you know, there is federal money coming through to the city for a lot of pandemic related costs. And then the mayor is also um, presenting a budget that in some ways, um, you know, was, was a, uh, sort of a placeholder again, but it had some very interesting pieces to it. Yeah, um, you know, and it, it was sort of happening in real time. I mean, so we, we should tell people that um, typically the city waits for the governor to release his executive budget and then releases its preliminary proposal and kind of takes a look at that and digests it. Um, there was a huge fear, and I think maybe there was a strategic decision made for the, the mayor to release in advance of the executive budget. Um, I will say, you know, the state budget was not as harsh on the city as we might have feared, um, and certainly it did not include some of the really drastic proposals we've seen in other years for things like, you know, unfreezing Medicaid costs that have been capped or shifting costs for CUNY or things like that. There were some odds and ends that the state was cutting in terms of um, its aid, but not really a drastic blow. Um, so what we have from the mayor's budget proposal, you know, in some ways had some surprises and in other ways was a bit of the same old. So yes, as you mentioned, they relied a lot on federal aid. Um, the package that Congress, per, you know, uh, approved in December didn't include direct uh, state and local aid, but did include a lot of money for schools and transit and other things. And there was an increased match on the FAP for Medicaid, which provided a lot of relief for the city as well, and for increased reimbursement of COVID expenses. So in these other sort of paths, there was a lot of budget relief for the city, which helped balance the budget. I think what was the big surprise was the magnitude of the impact on property taxes. So there's been a lot of fear about how this, you know, what we see particularly in, you know, commercial buildings and with small businesses, how that would all bubble up to affect the budget. And so here we got an answer. And I have to say the magnitude came as a real surprise to me. So this is the first time since the 1990s where we're going to see a decline in year over year property values and a big decline in market values, particularly about 5%. Um, and particularly high decline in commercial space, mm -hmm. um, the, you know, with a decrease of about 15%. And so that's not a one year blip. That is something that then gets, you know, put into the base. And as a result, we'll see this kind of decrease um, and leveling of the property tax in years to come. And again, this is like really notable because mm -hmm. the city has a diversified tax base, which is great for many reasons, right? And most of the taxes, personal income tax, sales tax, the business taxes are economically sensitive, right? So they, they're growing when things are great. They decline when things are bad. Property tax though has been this major stabilizing force that has just grown over time because of the strength of the market. And so here we see a decline um, that is really um, quite amazing. And, you know, it was about $2.5 billion loss. Um, and some of that was kind of offset by increases in other taxes that came in better than the city had expected. So that was the kind of big surprise. Um, on the other hand, we kind of saw the same old in terms of approaches and plans to, to managing the budget head on. So there was really no serious PEG program at all. I mean, there was some savings, but not much there. Certainly nothing that would kind of try to get ahead of the problem as we've been talking about for so long on the podcast. Um, there was, you know, there has been now a better attempt to decrease the size of the workforce and something now head on where they're saying they will um, replace, replace only one worker for every three that leave, which produce savings that are recur through the plan. So that was really it. Um, mm -hmm. And what is, I think, very worrisome is that the budget in 22 is balanced using most of the reserves that, that were built up in the budget, you know, the general reserve, which is there for a billion dollars, the capital reserve. Um, and then really with other things that in some ways will make the job more difficult for the next mayor. So there's a billion dollars in labor savings that the mayor put in the budget last year. 
He wasn't able to realize those savings. And so what he did was to come to some agreement with unions to just delay their payments into next year, making next year's budget gap fiscal 22 bigger. Mm-hmm. At the same time, this billion dollars for tw- fiscal year 22 is still in there. So the next mayor coming in will have to figure out how on earth uh, he or she can come up with these savings so quickly in such a very short time period, um, absent other changes. And so there's billion dollar in these labor savings or these payments that have been pushed. There's also the very real reality that are the labor contracts are starting to expire um, and money for providing any wage increases has been eliminated. And so, you know, this is appropriate. It's been done in the past. The problem is if you don't come to an agreement with the unions, um, you're just adding the risk to, you know, for the next person who will have to come in and negotiate an agreement. Um, and to the extent any wage increases are provided, it's a huge one-year hit um, and a huge increase for the city's costs. Um, so there are all these factors, right? They're you know, going on with labor, the inability to really do anything to reduce costs on a recurring basis and in a sustainable way. And of course, all the risks continue uh, in terms of the city's economic recovery and the state budget. Well, that was a great overview of some of the key pieces here and concerns and changes and, and lack of changes. Um, I think, you know, I think a couple of things. One, the, you hit on a few things that stood out the most to me and, of course, many other people. The property tax um, problem is a huge one and, and really, you know, should raise a lot of concerns um, for, for the city's near and long term uh, recovery. Uh, I think the question of what any, you know, going back to our discussion with EJ a little bit, what any sort of changes in um, how people are paying income taxes that might come or where people are living, working, um, those are not going to be felt necessarily immediately, but they, but there's some shifts that could be felt pretty soon here for the city. Um, and there's real questions around um, where people will claim their residencies, even if it's people with second homes in New York. Uh, you know, if they're if they're outside the city, um, you know, this could be a problem for the city budget, uh, at least in the short to medium term. And, you know, I think the um, the issue around agency uh, program to eliminate the gap or peg um, around agency savings, you know, will be very interesting to see what happens between the preliminary budget and the executive budget for the mayor. But I do think this reduction in the city headcount, you know, obviously the the headcount grew enormously under Mayor de Blasio. And he's, um, you know, defended that basically saying that, you know, he believes in more government and more government services, and also that these are good middle-class jobs for people. So that's, that's been his perspective, but it of course has set, you know, city finances in a, in a certain direction. That's, that's raised some, some questions, but the fact that he said that city headcount was already down, I think uh, roughly 7,000, since January 2020, and that now they're using this uh, attrition program that will reduce um, the city headcount another 5,000 positions in the next fiscal year, saving hundreds of millions of dollars, is is pretty interesting and pretty noteworthy. And and but as you got at, will absolutely also have to factor in to the larger labor picture and labor savings and negotiations with the. Uh, labor unions, and what kind of picture this mayor is leaving for the next, which again, so much will depend on what happens out of Washington, uh, at least in in the short term as well as another huge factor. So um, anything else you wanted to throw in there? I think we covered a lot of the broad strokes there. <laughs> yeah, very efficiently. Um, you know, the only thing I've had is just the federal piece is important, right? And this is why we have a federal government and we need a federal government to sort of be there and step up and help. You know, it doesn't have the same balanced budget requirements that state and local governments do. Um, and, you know, the counter cyclical stimulative spending is important, right? And so this, is, you know, we need it. You know, the problem is that that's not the end game. You know, mm-hmm. there are going to be problems and there are problems because we've talked about these issues for both the state and the city um, that linger. And so, the you know, the federal aid 
and, and you know, we expect there'll be some robust package, we'll give the state and the city kind of the breathing room and the cushion to be able to, you know, get through the next, let's say, 12 to 24 months without any, you know, harmful cuts or maybe tax increases. But it's really about what are you doing in the intervening period to make sure when that federal aid goes away, you're in a better place. And like we talked about with EJ, that you're not on this fiscal cliff because now you've restrained or you made changes to put yourself on a more sustainable path. And so that, you know, the, again, you know, it's important and we should all be advocating for the federal aid but it's not the end all be all, right? Like the local state and local leaders still need to be making changes and putting the city and the state in a stronger position to emerge from this crisis. Well said, and speaking of putting the city in stronger position and what we discussed about what this mayor is going to leave for the next mayor, uh, CBC has a exciting event coming up. Yes, on February 24th at 4 p.m., um, we are hosting a forum for the leading mayoral candidates, asking them to very specifically discuss what their plans are for closing the city fiscal gaps um, and to talk about what the fiscal ramifications are of other proposals that they may have. So as far as we know, it's really the only place where they're going to discuss this issue head on um, and really get into the details of what their plans are, not just for the immediate um, kind of period once they get in the door, but also for the long term for managing the city well and uh, fixing the fisc, as we are saying. So it's open to the public. Everyone is encouraged to, to register for the event on the Zoom and, you know, listen in because th this is, you know, we're the, there's the pandemic and the health crisis, there's the economic crisis, there's also the fiscal crisis, and that deserves some more targeted attention as well. So folks can go to cbcny.org to find info on the mayoral candidate forum. It's, uh, it's on the website there and it's February 24th at 4 p.m. The candidates will appear one by one to be asked pointed questions about their fiscal recovery plans and how they will uh, fund some of the programs that they're talking about. So that should be interesting. I know I'll be tuning in and I think we'll probably have a recap at Gotham Gazette uh, mm -hmm. soon after. Um, so looking forward to that. And that, sh that is an important discussion. And uh, while the mayoral candidates have been going all over the forum circuit, um, they've been talking about a whole host of issues, but, but budget and fiscal issues have not been at the forefront so far, even though there's been questions here and there about it. So this will be a really good concentrated time to hear from them on the city's finances. So that should be great. All right, now the sad part, Maria leaving us yeah uh, guys this is my last podcast and it is so bittersweet this has been you know i'm leaving to become the deputy controller the state deputy controller for budget and policy analysis joining a great shop that has done incredible work um under the direction of the legendary bob ward um and so i'll be replacing him and taking his position and kind of carrying on the good work there um, it's been a hell of a run. I've been at CBC 15 years and we've done this podcast for the last three. Mm -hmm. And it's just been like the most fun part of this job. You know, it's not, you know, we had the idea, we actually conceived of it as a very wonky insidery kind of like, let's interview the experts and get mm -hmm. into the data. And it, you know, it was a little bit of that, but it's something, it was something more. And I think, you know, really proud of the conversations we've had with people that really get to the substance and take the time to unpack the issues in a way people can kind of understand and come to their own determination about, you know, outside the spin, outside the talking points and Twitter and, and have these in-depth conversations. And it was like tremendous amount of fun. And it was so fantastic working with you and, and shaping this and thinking about it every, every week and then every mm -hmm. other week. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I will miss it dearly, um, but it will, it will go on in some form. Um, it will be revamped and go on. Um, and yeah, you know, we're, hopefully we'll still bring great conversations to you. We're, we're, we're picking ourselves up off, off the floor with the news of Maria's departure, but, um, but we'll figure out the, the future of what's the data point uh, moving ahead. But more importantly for now, uh, congratulations, Maria, and best of luck at the State Comptroller's Office. It's a great position you're, you're stepping into, and we're excited to 
see what you do there and, and keep calling you as we have uh, always on city and state budget issues and, and uh, you, you won't, uh, won't be, be taking my calls anymore, but that's okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be I'll... on my personal cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, this has been, as you said, this has been so much fun working with you on this and it's been um, really uh, more fun, more interesting than even I expected coming into it when we got it going in 2017. And as you said, you know, we, we've blended, I think, you know, a lot of the wonkier um, into the weeds of the budget discussion that a lot of folks do want to hear uh, with just, you know, some really interesting conversations with people in and out of government, elected officials, appointed officials, uh, advocates, analysts, and others, um, just some really great conversations and, you know, this type of, um, you know, format. And, and I'm just uh, happy that, that CBC has invested in it and that, um, you know, we've gotten to work together on this. So thank you for the years of enjoyable uh, podcast episodes and, and good luck. Thank you. Likewise. And in my final three seconds here, I really just want to implore people one to keep, you know, keep looking at the CBC website, keep reading the stuff and keep um, supporting Gotham Gazette. I mean, I've said it many times, it is an underappreciated gem of the city. And you're not going to get the, de you know, in-depth reporting really anywhere else on the city issues, on, um, you know, the political front, the substantive front, whatever. And Ben works really hard on it and it shows because it is like really high caliber work. So support Gotham Gazette. Read, read the stuff every day, circulate the newsletter, support the campaign fundraising, keep reading CBC stuff and follow CBC on Twitter. Um, and, you know, re remember that facts should guide us. That is my parting advice. The facts should guide us on the stuff. Well said. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.